Section 11 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikut Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 17 the last years of Nicholas I. 1. The assortment of the Jews. The beginning of the second emancipation of 1848 in Western Europe synchronized with the last phase of the era of oppression in Russia. That phase, representing the concluding seven years of pre-reformatory Russia, was a dark patch in the life of the country at large doubly dark in the life of the Jews. The power of absolutism, banished by the March Revolution from the European West, asserted itself with intensified fury in the land of the North, which had about that time earned the unenviable reputation of gendarme of Europe. Thrown back on its last stronghold, absolutism concentrated its energy upon the suppression of all kinds of revolutionary movements. In default of such a movement in Russia itself, this energy broke through the frontier line and found an outlet in the punitive expedition sent to support the Austrians in the pacification of mutinous Hungary. The triumphant passwords of political freedom, which were given out on the other side of the western frontier, only intensified the reactionary rage on this side. Since it was impossible to punish action, for under the vigilant eye of the terrible third section, revolutionary endeavors were a matter of impossibility, word and thought were subject to punishment. Censorship ran riot in the subdued literature of Russia, tearing out by the roots anything that did not fit into the mold of the bureaucratic way of thinking. The quiet precincts of the Russian intelligentsia, who, in the retirement of their homes, ventured to dream of a better political and social order, were invaded by political detectives who snatched thence numerous victims for the scaffold, the galleys, and conscription. Such were the contrivances employed during the last years of pre-reformatory Russia to hold together the old order of things in the land of officialdom and serfdom, in that Russia which the poet Kolmakov, though patriotic and slavophile, branded thus, blackened in court with falsehood blackness, and stained by the yoke of slavery, full of godless flattery, of vicious lying, and every possible knavery. But the full weight of the yoke of slavery and falsehood's blackness by which pre-reformatory Russia was marked fell upon the shoulders of the most hapless section of Russian subjects, the Jews. The tragic gloom of the end of Nicholas' reign finds its only parallel in Jewish annals in the beginning of the same reign. The would-be reforms proposed in the interval in the beginning of the 40s did not deceive the popular instinct. The Jews of the Pale saw not only the hand which was holding forth the Charter of Enlightenment, but also the other hand, 
which hit a stone in the form of new cruel restrictions. Soon, the government threw off the mask of enlightenment and set out to realize its reserve program, that of correcting the Jews by police methods. It will be remembered that the principal item in this program was the assortment of the Jews, i.e., the segregation from among them of all persons without a certain status as to property or without definite occupation, for the purpose of proceeding against them as criminal members of society. As far back as 1846, the government forewarned the Jews of the imminent bloody operation over a whole class against which Governor-General Voronsov had vainly protested. All Jews were ordered to register at the earliest possible moment among the guilds and estates assigned to them, with the understanding that in case this measure should fail, the government would of itself carry out the assortment to wit it will set apart the Jews who are not engaged in productive labor and will subject them as burdensome to society to various restrictions. The threat fell flat, for it was rather too much to expect that fully a half of the Jewish population, doomed by civil disabilities and general economic conditions to a life of want and distress, could obtain at a stroke the necessary property status or definite occupations. Accordingly, on November 23, 1851, the Tsar gave his sanction to the temporary rules concerning the assortment of the Jews. All Jews were divided into five categories. Merchants, agriculturalists, artisans, settled burghers and unsettled burghers. The first three categories were to be made up of those who were enrolled among the corresponding guilds and estates. Settled burghers were to be those engaged in burger trade with business licenses, also the clergy and the learned class. The remaining huge mass of the proletariat was placed in the category of unsettled burghers who were liable to increased military conscription and to harsher legal restrictions as compared with the first four tolerated classes of Jews. This hapless proletariat, either out of work or only occasionally at work, was to bear a double measure of oppression and persecution and was to be branded as despised pariahs. By April the 1st, 1852, the Jews belonging to the four tolerated categories were required to produce their certificates of enrollment before the local authorities. Those who had failed to do so were to be entered into the fifth category, the criminal class of unsettled burghers. Within the brief space allotted to them, the Jews found themselves unable to obtain the necessary documents, and thanks to the representations of the governors general of the Western governments, the term was extended till the autumn of 1852, but even then, the assortment had not yet been accomplished. The government was fully prepared to launch a series of draconian laws against the parasites, including police inspection and compulsory labor, but while engaged in these charitable projects, the lawgivers were taken aback by the Crimean War, which, with its disastrous consequences for Russia, 
diverted their attention from their war against the Jews. Yet, for a successive numbers of years, the law concerning the assortment or razriaden, as it was popularly styled by the Jews, hung like the sword of Damocles over the heads of hundreds of thousands of Jews, and the anxiety of the suffering masses were poured out in sad popular ditties. Ah, Azore, Agzraye, Miti, Razriadin. Alas, what misfortune and persecution there is in the assortment. 2. Compulsory assimilation. As for the measures of compulsory assimilation long ago foreshadowed by the government, such as the substitution of the Russian or German style of dress for the traditional Jewish attire, the long coat of the man, they were without any effect on Jewish life and merely resulted in confusion and consternation. A cult imperial ukase issued on May the 1st, 1850, prohibited all over the empire the use of distinct Jewish form of dress beginning with January the 1st, 1851, though the governors general were given the right of permitting aged Jews to wear out the old garments on the payment of a definite tax. The prohibition extended to the earlocks or payers of the men. A year later, in April 51, the government made a further step in advance and proceeded to deal with the female attire. His Imperial Majesty was graciously pleased to command that Jewish women be forbidden to shave their heads upon entering into marriage. In October 1852, this U.K. was supplemented by regulation that a married Jewish guilty of shaving her head was liable to a fine of five rubles, two and a half dollars, and the rabbi abetting the crime was to be prosecuted. Since neither the Jews nor the Jewish were willing to submit to imperial orders, the former from habit, the latter from religious scruples, the provincial authorities entered upon a regular warfare against these rebels. Both the governors-general and the governors subordinate to them displayed extraordinary enthusiasm in this direction. The officials tracked with utmost zeal not only the women culprits, but also their accomplices, the rabbis who attended the wedding ceremony, even including the barbers who were called in to shave the heads of the Jewish ladies. Jewish women were examined at the police stations to find out whether they still wore their own hair beneath their kerchiefs or wigs. Frequently, the struggle manifested itself in tragicomic and even repulsive forms. In some places, the police adopted the practice of cutting the payers or shortening the long coats of the Jews by force. The opposition to the authorities was particularly vigorous in the Kingdom of Poland, where the ranks and file of Hasidim were ready to suffer martyrdom for any Jewish custom, however obsolete. The fight was drawn out for a long time, even reached into the following reign, but the victory remained with the obstreperous masses. Though at a later period, as the result of general cultural tendencies, 
the traditional Jewish costume made way in certain sections of Jewry for the European form of dress, it was not in obedience to police measures, but in spite of them. Compulsory assimilation was as little successful now as had been compulsory isolation in the Middle Ages. The medieval rulers had imposed upon the Jews a distinct form of garment and a yellow badge to keep them apart from the Christians. Nicholas I employed forcible means to make the Jews by their style of dress appear similar to the Christians. The violence resorted to in both cases, though different in form, sprang from the same motive. 3. New conscription horrors There was yet one domain in which the squeezing and pressing power of Tsardom could fully employ in its destructive energy. We refer to military conscription. This genuine creation of the imperial brain became more and more intolerable, serving in Jewish life as a penal and correctional agency with its capture of old and young, its inquisitorial regime of Cantonists, its deportation for a quarter of a century and longer into far-off regions. Even the Russian peasants were stricken with terror at the thought of Nicholas' conscription, which in the reminiscence of the portrayers of that period is pictured as lifelong deportation, and they frequently shirked military duty by fleeing from the landowners and hiding themselves in the woods. How much more terrible must then conscription have been for the Jews, whose family was robbed both of a young father and a tender son. No means were left unused to evade this atrocious obligation. The reports of the governors referred to the immeasurable difficulties in carrying out the conscription among the Jews. Apart from innumerable cases of self-mutilation, to quote the words of one of these reports written in 1850, the disappearance without exception of all able-bodied Jews, has become so general that in some communities outside of those unfit for military service because of age or physical defects, not a single person can be found during conscription who might be drafted into the army. Some flee abroad, whilst others hide in adjacent governments. Those in hiding were hunted down like wild beasts. Their life, as a contemporary witness testifies, was worse than that of galley slaves, for the slightest indiscretion brought ruin upon them. Many resorted to self-mutilation to render themselves unfit for military service. They chopped off their fingers or toes, damaged their eyesight, and perpetrated every possible form of maiming to evade military service, which was in effect penal servitude. The most tender-hearted mother, to quote a contemporary, would place the finger of her beloved son under the kitchen knife of a home-bred clock surgeon. This evasion resulted in immense shortages which pressed heavily upon the Jewish communities since the latter were held collectively responsible for supplying the full quota of recruits. The reports about the unsatisfactory conscription results among the Jews filled the government in St. Petersburg with rage. The persistent reluctance of human beings to 
be parted almost for life from those near and dear to them, or to see their little ones carried off to an early grave or to the baptismal font, was regarded as manifestation of criminal self-will. Accordingly, the former measures of cutting short and curbing this self-will were improved upon by new ones. In December 1850, the Tsar gave orders that for every missing Jewish recruit in a given community, three men of the minimum age of 20 from the same community and one more recruit for every 2,000 rubles, $1,000 of tax, warriors should be impressed into service. A year later, the following atrocious measures were issued for the purpose of cutting short the concealment of Jews from military service. The fugitives were captured, flocked, and drafted into the army over and above the required quota of recruits. The communities in which they were hidden were to be fined. The relatives of recruits who failed to present himself in proper time were to be taken in his stead, even if these relatives happened to be heads of families. The official representatives of the communities were equally liable to being sent into the army if found convicted of any inaccuracy in carrying out the conscription. A reign of terror followed in the Jewish communities upon the promulgation of these laws. The Kahal elders, it will be remembered that they continued to exist after the abrogation of the Kahals, acting as the fiscal agents of the government, now faced a terrible alternative. To become, in the words of a contemporary, either murderers or martyrs, i.e., either to capture and send to, into the army any youth or boy without discrimination, or themselves to don the gray uniform and be impressed into military services as penal recruits. In consequence, a fiendish hunt after human beings was set at foot in the pale of settlement. Adults were seized and, regardless of their being the only mainstay of their families, were taken captive, and children of eight were captured and presented to the recruiting authorities as being of the obligatory age of 12. But, despite all this hunting, many communities were not able to furnish their quota of soldiers and the number of penal recruits from among the Kahal elders was very considerable. Weeping and mourning resounded in the neighborhood of the recruiting stations in the Jewish towns where parents and relatives took leave from their dear ones who were doomed to a perpetual barrack life. And yet the fury of the government was not satisfied. In 1853, new temporary rules were issued by way of experiment whereby not only communities but also individuals among Jews were granted the right of offering as their substitutes any fellow Jew from another city than his own who was caught without a passport. Any Jew who happened to absent himself from his place of residence without a passport could be seized and drafted into service as a substitute for a regular recruit due from the family of the captor. The captive, regardless of age, was made a soldier, and the captor was given a receipt for one recruit. A new ferocious hunt began. 
the official captors employed by the Kahals were no longer the only ones to prowl after living prey. The chase was now taken up by every private individual who wished to find a substitute for a member of his family or who simply wanted to turn a penny by selling his recruiting receipt. Hordes of Jewish bandits sprang up who infested the road and the inns, and by trickery or force made the travelers part with their passports and then dragged them to the recruiting stations as captives to be sent into the army. Never before had the Jewish masses, yielding to pressure from above, sunk to such depths of degradation. The Jew became a beast of prey to his fellow Jew. Jews were afraid of budging an inch from their native cities. Every passerby was suspected of being a captor or a bandit. The recruiting inquisition of Nicholas inflicted upon the Jews the utmost limit of martyrdom. It set Jew against Jew, called forth a war of all against all, threw the tortured and the torturer into one heap, and sullied the Jewish soul. All this took place while the Crimean War was going on. The Russian army, on the altar of which so many human sacrifices had been offered in the course of 30 years, marched to save the honor of Russia, in truth, to save the old regime. Squadron upon squadron issued from the inner recesses of Russia and marched towards the battlefield of the south, marched to the slaughter, into the mouth of the cannons of the English and French, who knew how to conquer without penal conscriptions and without inflicting tortures upon tender aged Cantonists. The gendarme of Europe, who armed to his teeth, had contemptuously threatened to finish the enemy with his soldier caps, could not hold out against the army of the rotten West. Hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers fell beneath the walls of Sevastopol upon the heights of Inkerman. Thousands of Jewish soldiers were laid among them in brotherly graves. The Jews, enslaved by pre-reformatory Russia, died for a fatherland which treated them as pariahs, which had bestowed upon them a monstrous conscription, the unexampled institutions of Cantonists, penal recruits, and captives. However, it soon became clear that those who had fallen under the walls of Sevastopol had sealed by their death not the honor but the dishonor of the old regime of blood and iron. Beneath the rotting corpse of an obsolete statecraft built upon serfdom and maintained by soldiery and police, the germs of new and better Russia began to stir. 4. The Ritual Murder Trial of Saratov One more detail was lacking to complete the dismal picture and to bring out the full symmetry between the end of Nicholas' reign and its ominous beginning, a medieval ritual murder trial after the pattern of the Valise case. And the trial of this nature did not fail to come. In December 1852 and in January 1853, Two Russian boys from among the lower classes disappeared in the city of Saratov in central Russia. Their bodies were found two or three months later in the Volga, covered with wounds and bearing the traces of circumcision. 
The latter circumstance led the coroners to believe that the crime had been perpetrated by Jews. Saratov, a city situated outside the Pale of Settlement, harbored at that time a small Jewish settlement consisting of some 40 soldiers of the local garrison and several civilian Jewish tradesmen and artisans who lived in the prohibited Volga town by the grace of the police. There were also a few converts. The vigilant eyes of the coroners were riveted on this settlement. An official by the name of Drunovo, who had been dispatched from St. Petersburg to take charge of the case, began at once to direct the inquiry into the channel of a ritual murder case. Needless to say, there was soon found material witness from among the ignorant or criminal class who were under the hypnotic influence of the ritual murder myth. A private called Bogdanov, who had been convicted of vagrancy and an intoxicated gubernatorial official by the name of Krieger, testified that they were present at the time when the Jews squeezed out the blood from the bodies of the murdered boys. They also mentioned by name the principal perpetrators of the murder, the circumcision expert in the local Jewish settlement, a soldier called Schlieffmann, and a furrier named Yankel Yushkevichia, a devout Jew. The incriminated Jews were thrown into prison, but despite excruciating cross-examinations, they and the other defendants indignantly denied not only their complicity in the murder, but also the trial murder accusation as a whole. The investigation became more and more involved, drawing into its net a constantly growing number of persons until in July 1854, a special judicial commission was appointed by order of Nicholas I for the purpose of disclosing not only the particular crime committed at Saratov, but also of investigating the dogmas of the religious fanaticism of the Jews. The latter task, being of a theoretic nature, was entrusted in 1855 to a special commission under the auspices of the Ministry of the Interior. Among the theologians and Hebraists who were members of that commission was also the baptized professor Daniel Scholzen, who had scientifically disproved the ritual legend. In 1856, after a protracted inquiry of two years, the judicial commission, having failed to discover evidence against the accused, decided to set them at liberty but to leave them under strong suspicion. In the meantime, Alexander II had ascended the throne of the Tsars, and the dawn of Russian Renaissance began to disperse the nightmares of the past era. Yet, so deeply ingrained were the old prejudices in many bureaucratic minds that when the conclusion reached by the Judicial Commission was submitted to the Senate, the vote were divided. The case was transferred to the Council of State, and there the high dignitaries managed to effect a compromise between their medieval prejudices and their involuntary concessions to the spirit of the age. 
They refused to enter into a discussion of the still unsolved question as to the use of Christian blood by the Jews, but they unhesitatingly recognized the existence of the crime itself, which had been perpetrated at Saratov. This in spite of the fact that the only ground on which the crime was ascribed to alleged fanatical practices and laid at the door of the Jews were the traces of circumcision on the dead bodies. Ignoring this inner contradiction and setting aside the weighty objections of the liberal minister of justice, Jamiatin, the Council of State brought in a verdict of guilty against the impeached Jews, the soldier Schlieferman and the two Yushkevichers, senior and junior, sentencing them to penal servitude. The sentence was confirmed by Alexander II in May 1860. The representatives of the St. Petersburg community, Baron Joseph Ginzburg and others, petitioned the Tsar to postpone the verdict until the scholarly commission of experts should have rendered its decision with regard to the compatibility of ritual murder with the teachings of Judaism. But the president of the Council of State, Count Orlov, presented the matter to the Tsar in a different light, asserting that all that the Jews intended by their petition was to keep off for an indefinite period the decision on a case in which their co-religionists are involved. He therefore insisted on the immediate execution of the sentence, and the Tsar yielded. After eight long years of incarceration, in the course of which two of the impeached Jews committed suicide, the principal perpetrator were found to be physical wrecks and no longer able to discharge their penal servitude. The innocent sufferer, old Yushkevichio, languished in prison for seven more years and was finally liberated in 1867 by order of Alexander II, who had been petitioned by Adolf Krimer, the president of the Alliance Israelite Universe, to pardon the unhappy man. In this way, the heritage of the dark past protruded into the increasing brightness of the new Russia, which, in the beginning of the 60s, was passing through the era of great reforms. End of section 11